Okay. Before we jump into that quite technical passage, let's pray together. Our gracious God, we, we humbly ask that you come amongst us this evening by your spirit work in our hearts. Be changing us from the inside out. Soften our hearts, we pray, so that we love you more, so that we're very aware of places that we can cut out sin and love other people more too. Father, please work in us this evening. Amen. So we have been in the book of Exodus for quite some time. I came to St. Mark's about 18 months ago, and it was soon after that we started Exodus, and we're still in Exodus. We've done some other books along the way, but we're finally at the final chapter. Exodus chapter 40. And if you are an Israelite, at this point in Exodus, the question on your heart and your mind would be this. Will God really be with us? Will God really be with us? You might be really surprised to hear this because the first 20 chapters of Exodus seem to be where all the action is. You know, the the Egyptians are are, are oppressing the Israelites and and the Israelites cry out in the first couple of chapters and, and God hears their prayer. And the next few chapters, or the next, you know, 15 chapters... Uh, God answering their prayer pretty dramatically. You've got the place, you've got the, the Red Sea, uh, you've got the escape into the desert. That's all in the first 20 chapters. And then it really slows down. You've got the law given in chapter 19 and 20 to 24. So, you know, quite tedious chapters to read through. Then you've got the, the instructions for the tabernacle after that until chapter 31. And then you've got more instructions for the tabernacle from chapters 35 to 39. It's pretty tedious stuff. But I'm going to suggest... That the whole of the book has been leading to this point. The whole of the book of Exodus has been leading to Exodus 40. And that's because the tension in the narrative has not been resolved. God didn't just want to rescue the Israelites from Egypt for the sake of it. God wanted to rescue the Israelites from Egypt so that he might be their God and they his people. That's the goal of the whole book. So in chapter 8, the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, This is what the Lord says. Let my people go so that they might worship me. The goal there is the Israelites worshipping. And then in chapter 29, Then they will know, this is God speaking, that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them and be their God. The goal of the whole book is that God might dwell with his people and that they might be his people who obey and worship him. And at this point in Exodus, we're not there yet. Things were looking so good. You might remember in chapter 19, the the Israelites heard the law of God and in response, in unison, they said, we will do everything you've said. That's a really good start. And then um, God gives them instructions, like I said, to build the tabernacle where God would dwell with his people from chapters 25 to 31. So it it looks positive, right? God's giving instructions for them to build a place where he would come and dwell. 
But then you might remember chapter 32. Chapter 32 hits us like a sack of potatoes. Chapter 32 is where the Israelites do exactly what they said they wouldn't do. Okay, The first two commandments are, you shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven or on earth and worship it. And so then in chapter 32, we hear the leader of the people of Israel say, this is the God who brought us out of Egypt. And I tell you what they were pointing at. They were pointing at a rock made to look like a calf. The Israelites totally put their foot in it. Like in the book of Exodus, this is dark. You remember the, the chapter. It's, it's, a, it's a supremely dark time for Israel. The question is whether they're going to survive this moment in the face of God's anger. And then you might remember Moses pleads to God. God, why does your anger burn against your people? Remember the promises you made to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Blot me out of your book, Moses says, instead of these people. It's a moment of extreme pressure for Moses. He advocates, he mediates for his people. And then a bit of light sort of begins to shine. Chapter 34, God reveals his character to Moses. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, abounding in love, slow to anger, forgiving sin and evil. There might be hope in the character of God. And then also in chapter 34, God gives them new tablets, uh, the, the stone tablets that Moses had broken at the side of the calf as a sign that the covenant had been broken. God gives him new tablets. Maybe that's a sign of a renewed covenant. And then in chapter 35 and 36, the people of Israel seem to show a renewed heart. They give their resources, their money and their time to obey God exactly as he had described in chapters 25 to 31. They, they begin to make the, the parts of the tabernacle exactly according to God, God's instructions. So there seems to be hope. But by chapter 40, God still hasn't come. And even though there's hope, the Israelites can't be sure that God will be with them, that God really will dwell amongst them for the journey ahead until it actually happens. And if it doesn't happen, if these people are left in the desert, in the wilderness, no drink or very little, very little food, it's not as if they've got an established city with you know, defences. If they're left without God, they'd be totally open to the ravages of the nations around them. They'd be a me- meandering tribe of, you know... Desert dwellers. They're totally dependent on God's coming to dwell with them. So chapter 40, um, we have the elements of the tabernacle ready. The Israelites had, had obeyed God and they have all the elements ready. And now it's up to Moses to put them all together into the tabernacle. So the, the, the chapter is quite tedious. We didn't read the whole chapter. The first 15 verses are God's instructions to Moses. This is how you should do it, exactly how you should do it. And then the next uh, you know, 15 or so, 16 to 33, is Moses obeying the instructions exactly as God said. Okay, so we're going to make our way through this passage. But instead of going through it sort of you know, verse by verse, you'll be very pleased to hear. Uh, we're going to go on a bit of a tour. 
okay? So is it going to be a virtual tour? Are you going to have a more interactive tour next week? I won't um, tell you too much about it, but Stuart has plans. It should be really good. But this is a, a more virtue, uh, virtue, vir, virtual tour. Okay, so imagine you're a priest, an Israelite priest, not a high priest, an Israelite priest in Israel. Here stands before you the tabernacle, okay? So you're standing outside the entrance. Imagine yourself walking through the tabernacle before it's constructed, okay? Because at the moment, it's not yet a functioning tabernacle as Moses putting it together. So you're standing at the entrance and you walk in. There are tables on the side. There's a big sort of um, fire altar in the middle. And ahead of you, just before the, the, the tent, there's a basin, a, a bronze laver where, where there's water. So you'd walk through here and... Not at the moment because it's being constructed, but in the future, when it is functioning, if it is functioning, you'd walk through here and you'd smell blood and you'd smell burning animals, like a barbecue. You'd hear animals and you'd see plenty of mess. The entrance to the tabernacle involved a lot of sacrifice. And if you walked in here each day, day after day as a priest, you'd realize that to have a holy, almighty, the holy, almighty God in your presence as a sinful people, it was very costly. Approaching his presence meant sacrifice, blood sacrifice. The animals were the substitute for the people because you can't approach God, a holy God, as a sinful people without dying. That's what walking through there day in day out would have told you very clearly but it's not functioning at the moment and so we've reached the the um the tent and there hasn't been much action yet and so this is a closer view of the tent you get to the curtain the purple curtain has cherubim woven into it now the cherubim if you if you remember were the angels that were guarding the, the presence of god in eden okay so these are cherubim woven onto the curtain to say do not enter this place. This place is holy unless you're prescribed to enter it. Um, so that's the curtain. Then you walk into the, the tent, and on the left-hand side is a candle lampstand. There'd be seven branches on the lampstand. And if you read the instructions in Exodus 25, there's all these botanical allusions to this construction of this <coughs> lampstand. This lampstand was symbolic for the tree of life in the garden of Eden. We're approaching the presence of God. And then on your right hand side, you'd see the bread of the presence. Here there was, there was bread, obviously. And that reminded you, not only of the unleavened bread that God um, instructed the people to eat as they left Egypt. But it also reminded you of in chapter 24, the leaders of Israel going up the mountain and establishing the covenant with God. They had a meal with God on the mountain when the covenant was established. It reminded you of that pivotal moment for Israel. And then ahead of you, there was this golden altar of incense. This altar was symbolic for the prayers of God's people rising to his throne. As the fragrance rose in in the tabernacle, this was symbolic of the prayers of God's people coming before him. And so this is the tent of meeting. This is the holy place. And ahead of you is this curtain with bigger cherubim on them. Again, emphasizing you cannot enter this place. Don't go beyond this 
this, this curtain. Now, when, again, this is a functioning tabernacle, only one person could go beyond this curtain, and that's once a year, the high priest. You're not a high priest, you're just a regular priest. So usually, you'd never be allowed beyond this point. But, it's not functioning, so we're going to walk in. And in the Holy of Holies, this is the most sacred space for Israel, was this. A golden Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant had one thing in it at the moment. And that is the laws of God. In the most sacred part of the tabernacle were the words of God. And I'll tell you why that they were at the most sacred part of the tabernacle. Because Israel's existence depended on them keeping these words. The words of God, which were the Ten Commandments. In the Hebrew, it's, it's literally ten words. The ten words. The words of God were meant to lead the community. That The community were meant to hear his words and obey them. The community were meant to establish their life according to these words. I hope you're sort of hearing parallels between us and them at the moment. But this was in the most holy place of the tabernacle. So there's the tour of the tabernacle. Next week it'll be even more fun, I'm sure. But in the chapter, chapter 40, there's this very clear progression. There's a progression from God's instructions to Moses obeying God's instructions. And seven times in the second half of the chapter, it says that Moses did this and this and this as the Lord had said. Moses did this and this and this as the Lord had instructed. It happens seven times. And whenever things happen seven times in the Bible, it means it's done completely, like completely obeyed. I remember when I was about 15 and I went through this rebellious period where, where I would hear what mum and dad said and I'd think about how I could not do what they said. It was, it was like, a, it was like a, a, a cognitive process. Okay, they said this. What can I do not to do that? It happened for about six months. Um, and then, so not long after, I realised that... Um, that I was being stupid, and also that what they said often comes from a place of love and wisdom, and I started to obey what they said. I mean, that's, that's very neatly described. It was, it was a bit more untidy um, than that. But the point is, finally in the book of Exodus, God has a people who will obey what he says. Finally, Moses is a representative of his people and he has done exactly what God has said, just as the Israelites had done in the chapters prior. This is, this is a bit of a climactic moment in the book of Exodus. And so it leads us to verse 34. If you've got the Bible open. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting, because the cloud was there, was settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they'd set out. But if the cloud didn't lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. 
So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day and fire was in the cloud by night in the sight of all the Israelites during all their travels. That's a nice story. God finally comes to his people. What does that mean for us? This is a story that is what, um, like three and a half thousand years old. What does it mean for us? I've got five points, okay? What does this mean for us? Five points they won't take long to go through. First is a verse that we read uh, from John chapter 1. Key verse. The word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. Now, if you were reading this in the original language, um, the expression made his dwelling amongst us is summarized into one word. The word became flesh and tabernacled with us. For Christians, the tabernacle is fascinating. The physical tabernacle. It tells us about the the history of God with his people. It tells us about God's holiness. It tells us about our sinfulness and our, our need for a sacrifice to enter his presence. But for us, we don't go to the tabernacle, obviously. We don't have a tabernacle here. Maybe we could make one, you know, just for fun. But we don't have one. Christians... Have Jesus. Jesus is our tabernacle. So where do we go to see the presence and glory of God? We go to the Gospels and we see Jesus. Jesus is, um, according to Hebrews 1, the, the radiance of God's glory. So God has glory. It's, it's like the rays coming from a sun. And when you see God, you see, or when you see the sun, you see its rays. You don't see the actual sun. If you want to see God, you look at his son, Jesus. He is the glory of God in person. And in Colossians 2, it says, God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in Jesus. Jesus is our tabernacle. We come to Jesus to get to know God. We come to Jesus to see God. And so, really, reading the Gospels should be a, a, a relatively mind-blowing experience. We're seeing Jesus interact in his world with people, saying things, acting compassionately to some, having harsh words to say to others because they need to hear it. That's God acting in our world. And so Jesus is our tabernacle. We go to him to see God. We we go to him to see the presence of God. That's my first point. My second point is, um, is this verse from, what comes from this verse from 1 Corinthians. Just before I show it, um, you might remember that the, the Corinthian church, they were no particularly glorious church. They were a group of Christians who trusted Jesus, but they were characterized by immorality, sexual immorality. If you, if you read the chapters, they, there were some pretty crazy things going on in that church. And they were pretty confused as well. 
But still, Paul says this to them. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that the, or God's spirit dwells in your midst? These words are to any group of Christians who trust and follow Jesus. Now, to go back to Exodus, the, the, the presence of God was symbolized by the cloud. And especially in chapter 19, you get a sense of how holy and powerful and scary this, this presence was. You might remember in, in chapter 19, no one could, could ascend the mountain except Moses. Only Moses. And if anyone else ascended the mountain while God was present via the cloud, they'd die. That's the power of and the holiness of God. And what this verse is saying is that that same presence is here. Let that sink in for a second. I'm letting it sink in. That same presence is here amongst us and in us. And what the power of God is doing amongst us and in us is doing the miraculous. It's changing hard hearts, stiff necks, you might remember from previous weeks, into soft ones, into hearts that begin to beat again, beat in love for God and love for other people. Now that's as good as a resurrection, as far as the scriptures are concerned. God's presence is amongst us, is in us, is changing us. The Spirit of God is producing fruit, fruit of the Spirit. In us. Now, I wonder if that's how you see church. Do you see our, our gathering here as where the Spirit of God dwells? My third point is that Israel was always dependent on the mercy of God, but especially after Exodus 32. After that crazy, crazy calf incident. If God was ever to continue dwelling with them, it was only going to be by his mercy. And that's exactly the same for us too. We're only ever in our relationship with him. We can only ever call God Father because of his ongoing grace and mercy shown to us. Because if you're anything like me, every day you do things and you think, that was totally stupid. I shouldn't have said that. I should be more patient there. I shouldn't have sent that email. I shouldn't have. I sh- we all stuff up. But God's mercy and grace mean that he continues to lead us and dwell in us. And the point I want to make here is that if we are a community sort of swimming in grace and mercy, then that will be shown in how we treat other people. Um, I'm sort of working from a, a parable in Matthew 18 that Light's looked at recently. Um, it's a parable where the king wants to get what he gave to people back, the, the money owed to him back. And I won't, tell this, I won't tell the parable, but the point of the parable is that the person who realises how much mercy and grace they've been shown will show it other people. And the tragedy of that parable is that this person who was shown so much grace, so much mercy, didn't show a tiny bit to this other person. People who are shown mercy show mercy and grace and loving kindness when people don't deserve it to others. And it should also characterise the way we act together. 
Uh, fourthly, mercy is, is sort of the culture, the DNA, or the, 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 the God's mercy is, is what we swim in as a people. But that doesn't mean that obedience isn't important. The point of the book of Exodus is that finally God has a people who obey his word. Obedience is crucial. And it's the exact same way for us. Uh, God tabernacled in his son. And he walked up a hill eventually and died as a sacrifice. And the whole reason was so that the power of sin would be broken in our lives. God would forgive us and and sin's power broken. And the Spirit dwells in us to free us from sin. It's all to get us to be obedient. So here's a verse from Romans chapter 8. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. What this is saying is that we should all have a bit of a radar in our lives. What are actions? What are attitudes? What are things going on in our life that are unfit for us as children of God being led by the Spirit? We should all have this radar all the time so that we can notice things that aren't appropriate and then put it to death. It's, it's violent language. It's not tolerated. It's not sort of wait until next year. It's kill it. Murder your sin. Because it, it's dangerous. By the Spirit of God, put to death anything inappropriate in your life. If there's something that comes to mind for you now that you've been struggling with for a long time, some type of sin that comes to mind, and you'd like help with that, I'd be more than happy to talk to you about that and maybe lead you to the right person, who, someone else who might be able to help. This is serious stuff. We as Christians need to put to death our sin. And finally, my final point, just as the tabernacle was God's sort of mobile dwelling place that would lead the people from where they're at in the wilderness to their promised land... We have God's Spirit to lead us to our destination. Uh, our destination isn't a piece of land in the Middle East. Our destination isn't even heaven. Heaven is like a fantastic layer of a lounge. It's being with Christ. It's, we, we can look forward to going to heaven. But our final goal is the new creation. When we, by the power of God, are raised in our new bodies in a new, renewed world. A world that's got the curse of sin and death taken away a world as it was meant to be and the spirit of god dwelling in us is going to lead us there i hope in however many years to see you all there in this renewed creation whatever that's going to be like i think it blows our categories to try to understand what it would be like but i hope to see you there I'll be playing cricket. I'll be working the, the, the turf to make sure it's a, a bouncy wicket. That's probably down playing. The, it, it breaks out categories. You don't like cricket probably, so you think, I don't want to go there. Um, 
Okay. So, to finish off, we have spent a long time in, in the book of Exodus. And I'm going to take us to a living room with uni students. And they're all sitting around and there's a special guest in their midst. His name's Alec Motier. You, you might not know him. He's a sort of a famous uh, Bible scholar. And one of the uni students asked Alec, what's the connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament? And this is what Alec Motier said. Think of an Israelite. What would they say on their way from Canaan, the promised land, after passing through the Red Sea? So if you asked an Israelite, he continued, who are you? The Israelite might have replied, I was in a foreign land under the sentence of death and in bondage, but I took shelter under the blood of the Lamb and our mediator led us out and we crossed over. Now we're on our way to the promised land, though we're not there yet. But he's given us his law to make us a community and he's given us a tabernacle because we must live by grace and forgiveness. And he is present in our midst And he will stay with us until we arrive home. And then he finished. That's exactly what a Christian says. Almost word for word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you have done what we couldn't do. You have rescued us from the power of sin and you have given us your presence, your spirit to change our hearts, to make us live lives that are far from sin. Father, please help us live lives that are characterized by by putting to death sin in our life and bringing to life by the power of your spirit righteousness. Father, we pray that you give us a strong sense of your presence amongst us as a church and individually as we seek to keep in step with your spirit, as we make our way to our destiny, our promised hope, the renewed heavens and earth where you will dwell in your fullness. Amen.